Welcome to All Road 65 Max Radio, where the road ahead gets brighter as we journey toward truth, traveling through our dreams and inspiration into a new reality. It's time, and your ticket is waiting. All aboard All Roads Lead 65 Max with Pamela Henderson. Greetings, and thank you for joining me on BBS Radio, All Road 65. I am your host, Pamela L. Henderson. You can reach me by joining us here on Patreon.com, All Road 65, or here, having an opportunity to join me on my channel at BBS Radio All Roads, and stop by and like me on my IG, Pamela H. Inspires Jewels. I am the author of the new up-and-coming book, A Journey of a Sapphire, coming soon at ajourneyofasapphire.com. I would like to take this time to give my condolences to the families of our falling soldiers who have put their lives on the line for our country and for the country of Afghanistan. My prayers go out to all the families who have lost loved ones, and I wish us all peace during this time of uncertainty. God bless us all. Today is my special guest, Mr. Neil Farber, MD. Mr. Farber is a retired academic internal medicine physician. He obtained his undergraduate degree, cum laude, in biology at Franklin and Marshall College, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, in 1972. And he was Phi Beta Kappa. He went on to get his medical degree from the University of Pennsylvania in 1976. He then completed a residency in internal medicine at Temple University, Hospital in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He practiced medicine for over 40 years, teaching, researching, and providing patient care in medical schools, initially on the East Coast. For 12 years, he was professor of clinical medicine at University of California, San Diego, retiring at the end of April of 2019. His academic interests are in education, and teaching, especially in regards to patient-physician communication skills and medical ethics. He has received numerous awards, including Top Doctor of San Diego five times, and he is a member of the FDA Non-Prescription Drug Advisory Committee. He has published over 60 research papers and has recently published a book entitled Recognizing and Utilizing Common Everyday Events to Enhance Your Life and Career. At last, I want to say thanks again for giving me this interview chance, Mr. Farber, and welcome to the show. And how are you doing today? I'm doing fine. How are you? I am doing absolutely wonderful. So tell me a little bit about you, Mr. Farber. Where did you grow up? So I grew up on the East Coast in the Catskill region in New York State. 
Um, but lived most of my life in Philadelphia, uh, moving here to San Diego about 14 years ago. Great. I've been to San Diego once. Uh, I was when I was a restaurant manager. I had trained in um, right outside of you guys in going across the border there um, for Boston Market. It was very, very interesting. San Diego is very beautiful. It is. I've been reading about who you are and everything, and it was, I was very inspired. Tell me, what will be the biggest challenge for a person filling the position of a clinical professor? <clears throat> well, the, you know, the, you have to juggle lots of different things. I guess that would probably be the, the biggest challenge. You know, on the one hand, you, it, it's also the most exciting thing, too. Though. Um, on the one hand, you have to see patients on a regular basis. Um, at the same time, you have to do teaching and, and wrap your head around that at times. And then also you have to do uh, research, scholarly activity. And so sort of merging all three things um, in, into your usual daily life can be challenging, but also very exciting. Why did you want to become a doctor? Um, well, I, I, it was um, my, my greatest interest was in science and especially in biology. Um, and that, that was even at a very young age. And <clears throat> I, I also had this feeling of wanting to talk to people and be with people and help people. And, and the two not, obviously naturally merged into a career of medicine. Um, but my, the, the interesting thing is why did I become an academic internal medicine physician? And I'm glad I told about in, in the story, in the book. Um, by the way, the book is called Serendipity, um, Utilizing Everyday Unexpected Events to Improve Your Life and Career. And um, it was really serendipity that, that it happened. Um, I, first of all, got interested in acting in high school because, on a dare. Um, someone, someone dared me to, to try out for the play in high school. And uh, I was not a very good actor, but I loved being on stage. I loved the idea of talking to people. And then uh, my high school was uh, in a small rural town, but fairly progressive. And so at the end of senior year, they did this thing called Red Letter Day, where you put in your favorite teachers, you know, a list of your favorite teachers, and they would match you with one. And on Red Letter Day, you were that teacher. The teachers did not come to school. We acted as the teachers. And from, I, I was just so excited to be able to interact with um, other other kids in the, in the school and being able to teach them things that I knew and, and, and see the look on their faces when they sort of got it that I knew from then on I had to teach. Wow. Yeah, that is interesting. And that was very inspiring 
because being able to, like, for instance, when I was 12 years old, I wanted to become a solid gold dancer. Hmm. And I used to dance in front of the mirror and Dionne Warwick. She was the host for that evening. And I tell you, you couldn't tell me nothing when I was uh, dancing. I don't know what I was doing, but I was just turning and everything. And when you get that opportunity to just be you for that for that time, <laughs> it's a great yeah. feeling. So, yeah, that is great. It is a great feeling. Yes. I always ask all my doctors because this is really, really important to someone that's uh, seeing a doctor for whatever reason. So my question to you is, what qualities do you have that means that you are a good doctor? Because I have gone to the visit the office, but what qualities do you feel that you have that makes you a good doctor? So it's something I've actually thought about quite a bit because um, of my interest in, in the relationship between the patient and the physician. And, and the qualities are, are several. Uh, a good physician has to be able to communicate with, with the patient. And, and communication doesn't mean talking to the patient. It means hearing the patient's story mm-hmm. and then um, figuring out what's going on and then being able to communicate back as to, as to what, what the problem is and what, what needs to be done about it. Um, the, the physician also needs to be curious about the patient and about what's going on with the patient. Um, and they have to be um, sort of uh, capable of being able to to do the the uh, the research, the investigation, the the understanding of, of what what it is that the problem that the patient has. So it's all those things combined uh, in terms of being able to to evaluate a, a person and being able to communicate and tell them what it is. And I assume you have all those qualities, correct? I think I do. Um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I, I was rated very highly by my peers as well as my patients, and and it's something I've studied a long time, and therefore I, I think I know how to, how to deal with patients and how to help them as much as I can. Do you feel you have any bad points about being a doctor? Like anything that you needed to work on, or you just... Just well, I think I think every doctor. physician mm-hmm. I think every physician needs to work on things. Um, you never, you know, no one can ever be um, perfect. <laughs> um, so there's always things to work on and always things to learn. For example, um, you know, I, I, I would early in my career I was very interested in patient-physician communication. And how we communicate back and forth, and and basically, when seeing a patient, being open-ended, meaning asking the patient to tell their story. Um, but as I uh, went on in my career, there came about another kind of concept called the patient-centered um, orientation. Um, 
and that is meaning that that the patient is the center of the interaction and dis- and should be able to tell their story but and and you need to be able to as a physician be able to interact with the patient to come to a decision together um, and then it be- and then it went on beyond that to relationship centered care and that means not only the patient but how do you relate to your peers how do you relate to the institution you're in so we're constantly learning um, so it's not not something that you um, learn once and then that's it for the rest of your career you're, you're constantly learning and working on who you are as a physician that is so true that's for all of us that is true tell me a little bit about the medicine at Temple University Hospital um, well Temple University was a uh, is I should say uh, a large medical center that is sort of in the heart of the city and um, we saw a lot of patients who um, a, a wide variety of patients any patient who was in the area would would come and see us mm-hmm. so it was there were patients who were very poor and, and needed a lot of assistance all the way to patients who were very wealthy and and saw specialists at at the hospital so it was a really wide mix of of different patients and and it, I was very lucky to have done a residency there because it prepared me to be able to see patients of of a different of all kinds of varieties, all kinds of different problems. Yeah. What excites you most about that particular job? I guess it's, there are two things. It's, it's the ability to be able to um, interact with a patient and find out who they are. They're, you know, one of the things, and I talk about this in the book, one of the things that all of us as physicians have is curiosity. And that's a really crucial thing for most people to have. Um, and I have had tremendous experiences um, learning who the patient is, um, not only in terms of who they are as a person, but, but their occupation, um, their experiences, all kinds of different things. And that, that's really an exciting part of it. The other exciting part is being able to um, put together, you know, make connect the dots, and this is an, another important thing that one needs: being able to connect the dots as to what's going on with the patient, being able to make connections. Both of those things are really important, and really exciting when they happen. Yeah. What project is your most significant career accomplishment? Well, um, I've had several. Um, you know, I've had several. I, I've had over sixty papers published. Many of them um, fairly significant in terms of the, the findings, especially in the realm of medical ethics, but some in communication skills. But I really um, feel like my sort of um, my opus, if you will, was was this book. Uh, about serendipity, because much of my life, both personal life and professional life, 
really um, hinged on these serendipitous events that I was able to recognize and take advantage of. And I, I really felt I needed to convey that to other people uh, about how to do that. Hmm. Very good. What are your hobbies outside of work? you have any hobbies since you retired? Yes. Um, <laughs> beside, besides this writing, and, and mm-hmm. I also have written a novel that is uh, in the midst of being um, sort of edited and, and, and redone somewhat. But um, I'm also a, a docent at the uh, San Diego Air and Space Museum, and I, I really love that. That That's always been a sort of side passion of mine ever since I'm a little kid growing up with the space race and all. Mm-hmm. And and now I get to teach people uh, all about uh, stuff about air and space when they come to the museum. Wow. So that's been a lot of fun. That is beautiful. We're going to take a break, and we will be right back. BBSRadio.com Greetings and welcome back to BBS Radio, All Road 65. I am your host, Pamela L. Henderson, with my special guest, Mr. Neil Farber. So, Mr. Farber, elaborate a little bit about the patient-physician communication skills in medical ethics. That was very interesting to me. So, um, as I was saying about the patient-centered approach, um, Mm -hmm. communication between the patient and physician goes both ways. Um, The physician needs to be able to get the patient to tell them their story. And the best way of doing, you know, we used to, the way I was taught to do it way back when, (laughs) was basically you asked a whole bunch of questions of the patient. The problem with that is the patient feels that they answer the questions, but they don't get to really tell their story, but they, they feel intimidated to do so. And so the physician loses a lot because of the fact that they don't encourage the patient to be um, to tell them everything that's going on. And so you need to, as a physician, you need to say to the patient, tell me about yourself, tell me what's going on, how can I help you? And, that, and then staying quiet and listening to what the patient's story is. On the other hand, the patient, the physician needs to be able to be sensitive and um, learn an approach that's effective when, when giving news to the patient, especially if it's bad news. Um, there are ways of doing that, and, and we, I learned it and then was able to teach others about how to do that. Um, medical ethics is a, is a broad range of, of things. It's basically talking about the, um, w- where there's a difference in values between two individuals. So it could be, um, for example, a patient who <clears throat> feels that they, they've reached the end of their life and they shouldn't, shouldn't be on a ventilator, let's say, in, in that kind of situation. And the physician m- might disagree and feel like they need to be on the ventilator. 
Um, there are those kinds of ethical issues. My particular interest um, was mostly, although I did a few others, but my particular interest were the values where a physician is in conflict between caring for an, an individual patient when those values come in conflict with the society as a whole. For example, <clears throat> if a patient came to me and said, uh, you know, I, I'm having these headaches because uh, I'm really stressed because I, I robbed a bank because two weeks ago because I had to get some money to, to help my mother who's sick, and I, I promise I'll never do it again, um, but I need help for these headaches. Please don't turn me into the police. And the physician is in a quandary about should I or shouldn't I tell the police about this because the patient's committed a crime and might, for example, do some of these kinds of things in the future. <clears throat> and those are the kinds of issues I, I particularly looked at um, through my career. Oh, that's great. That's that's great. You recently published a book entitled Recognizing and Utilizing Common Everyday Events to Enhance Your Life and Career. Can you tell tell us a little bit yeah, about the that? The title of Yeah, the title of the book is actually Serendipity. Oh, Serendipity. Um, okay. Period. <laughs> okay. Utilizing utilizing everyday uh, unexpected events to improve your life and career. And, and and I actually, the way I got the idea for the book was serendipitous. I was convinced I would never write a book. I mean, I had written 60 articles. My friends kept telling me, you have to put that into, you know, summation and write a book about it. And I felt that would be repetitious. And I wouldn't be interested in writing. I didn't think anybody would be interested in reading it. Um, and then uh, one night, I, I guess I was dreaming, but I woke up at 3 o'clock in the morning and instantly knew the book I had to write. And it was because of the fact that all most of my research, um, many of my professional decisions, much of my personal life, all were these serendipitous events that occurred that I was able to recognize it as a serendipitous event and took advantage of it. And I, mm. I knew I could teach others how to do that. And that, that's why I wrote the book. So give me an example of teaching someone that. Like, oh, one of mine? Mm -hmm. The name of your book is so interesting. <laughs> yeah. So, so, um, I, so I'll give you one of mine, but, but my favorite one actually is in, in history. Um, okay. But one of mine was um, was how I got involved in in the research involving medical ethics. I I began being interested in communication skills, but I had absolutely no interest in medical ethics. I I thought it was you know sort of stuff that everybody knew anyway, and why bother and that kind of thing. And uh, I was at a at a meeting at. Uh, we had a, a meeting of our division, our, our general internal medicine division, uh, at the place I was at one, once a week. And it varied around different topics, but one of the topics um, that it was included was stuff about medical ethics. 
And there's one time there was a discussion about um, uh, sort of scarce, one of the ethical issues called scarce resources. That is, mm-hmm. you know, if, if well, let's say you had um, two people have uh, cardiac arrest, their heart stop, in the hospital at the same time, but you only had one resuscitation team, how would you decide who would get the resuscitation? Okay? Mm-hmm. And so w- w- there was a lot of discussion about that um, going on about it. And this one resident raised his hand and said, this whole discussion, and I was interested, this got me interested. And this one resident raised his hand and said, this whole discussion is moot. And I thought, what? What's he talking about? And he said, it's moot because we always make our decisions based on either, you know, who needs it the most, who's, who's most in trouble. Uh, and I thought, that is absolutely not true, because I knew we all had biases. I'd been reading about these things about biases people had. And I, I inherently knew that residents had biases, because I was a resident not long before. And I remember residents have, having those kinds of biases. And I thought to myself, you know, that's just not true. And I've got to show this guy that it's not true. And I thought, how can I do that? And it suddenly dawned on me that, you know, I had been trained uh, about how to do survey research. I said, I know I can do a survey where I present different cases to the resident and see how likely it was that they, you know, on a hypothetical basis, on a, on a make-believe basis, they would um, decide to resuscitate somebody. And I, I, I wrote the survey I administered it to all the residents in, in the institution I was at, and lo and behold, the residents had really significant biases about who they would or would not, or, you know, uh, do cardiac resuscitation on. Um, I published, uh, so I, I published that paper. Uh, I submitted it to a medical journal, got it published, and I was hooked. I knew I had to do that kind of research from then on. Wow. And so you only written what one book so far besides the you well, know sixty. Mm-hmm. So far, well, I've actually written two books so far. Uh, the first one was this book about serendipity and how to take advantage of it. Mm-hmm. Um, the second book is actually a novel based on a lot of my experiences over the years, and uh, that's um, still in the midst of being worked on. Okay. What's the name of that one that's coming out? Um, that'll be quite a while, probably. You know, you know, it takes it takes a good year before you get all the editing and everything done. But um, that one will be called Hudson. Okay. Okay. Um, and, and that's a it's 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 based loosely on my my experiences over the years. Yeah. So how does it feel since you didn't retire, and where do you see yourself in the next five years? So some of my patients gave me very wise advice. Mm-hmm. Um, they said, don't ever retire from something, retire to something. 
um, I've seen patients who who retired and said, and I asked them, what are they planning on doing? And and their response was, oh, I'm going to relax. You know, I've been working hard. I want to just relax. And they are are depressed and sick within a, a year of their retirement. So true. So Others true. who who are very active and excited to do things do great. Um, so um, where I see myself in five years is um, continuing to be a docent at the Air and Space Museum. I love it, and I, I want to continue doing that. Uh, I began um, doing a lot of hiking of the national parks when okay. I retired. Unfortunately, that got curtailed with COVID-19, but when sure. hopefully that goes away, I want to go back to doing that. So that'll be something I'll be doing in five years. And I see myself probably publishing another three or four books in the meantime um, during that time period. And if you were asked to help in another country that needed your expertise and services to teach, what country would you choose and why? Wow. (laughs) (laughs) That is a difficult question. (laughs) Um... You know, I hadn't thought about it. I guess I would have to look and see where education would really help the country the most. You know, there are a lot of countries you think of, um, like we've had the problem, you know, the problems in Afghanistan and problems, a lot of problems in the Middle East, a lot of problems in countries like Haiti. And, and I truthfully don't know where medical education would be best, you know, Teaching in 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 those which, which of those countries would be the best um, for them because of the fact that there may be so many other needs, but um, it would be a country such as that probably either in some of the poorer countries in the Caribbean, um, in Africa, or or in the Middle East. I want to go to Senegal, and I, I do want to meet um, Akon. Um, he was a artist, and he's doing some great things in Senegal. And I haven't had a chance mm-hmm. to even visit Africa. I think with my foundation, it would be great as well. So I'm excited about that. Yeah. Yes, that I am. Yeah. What are the three most attributes you'll bring to a company? So say like if I needed you and I wanted to hire your expertise as being part <laughs> of like for the mental side of things with the girls as we have focus groups and things like that. Mm-hmm. What would be the most? What would be the three attributes that you can offer my foundation? Um, I, I think the three would be, <clears throat> first of all, um, to um, learn about relationship-centered approaches to communication. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's that's vitally important because I think people have oftentimes um, conflicts in the, in the places where they work. Um, they may have conflicts with their um, colleagues and coworkers. 
and and learning how to to communicate well and have an other centered approach can mm-hmm. really be monumental in terms of not only the the person's own stance within that corporation or or facility but also for the corporation or facility itself if you, if everybody learns that approach the right. second thing would be curiosity um that is one of the most important parts of learning to take advantage of things around you. Um, you you have to be able to be curious to to explore things so that you know this is something that could be important. And the third thing would be um, learning observational skills, um, mm. learning to recognize when things are happening that could you could really take advantage of. Um, and and those with those skills, someone can uh, really improve not only themselves but but the uh, the company or or group that they're working for. Great, great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Talk to You're me welcome. about a period in your life when you had to conquer something that was significant, a significant limitation that stood in your way for you accomplishing your goals? Well, um, or did you not have one? <laughs> oh, no, no, no. I, <laughs> I don't know anybody who doesn't. Um, I guess there are two things. One is my parents were poor. Um, and, um, you know, I, I had I had the goal in mind of being an academic physician, and and I had the uh, ability to be able to do that. I I was intelligent enough, did well in school, but <clears throat> finding the financial resources to do so sometimes was a challenge for me. Um, I luckily was able to do that with the help of the other schools I went to, but it was some, somewhat of a challenge at times. Um, the other thing that was the major challenge for me was, um, 24 years ago, my wife developed brain cancer and, um, she is still with us, um, many years later, um, but it was quite a challenge to help her take care of her, do what we needed to make her better. And at the same time, continue to work and do everything else I was doing for my patients, for my students, um, for the institutions I work for. So those were two challenges I think I had. I know that was hard. I've been there. I, I, here I am a entrepreneur and I am the CFO of our small production company. My mother had um, was diagnosed with carcinoma cancer and she was my best friend Mm. and here I am I became her caregiver and taking her to chemo radiation doctor's appointments therapy I mean it was very very overwhelming but at the same time, mm-hmm. 
I was willing to do anything for my mom. I mean, I, I just wanted her to live. And she had to change her diet. And she she did smoke and she did drink. But she was given five years to live. And she had told me, she said, one thing that I am not going to do, I'm not going to give up everything. I am just going to live my life until it's my time to go. So she she did. She had mm-hmm. changed her diet and she stopped smoking, but she wouldn't stop drinking. She loved her vodka. And she had told me, if you could just take these last few years that I have and just follow me and, um, you know, and just let me enjoy myself and, you know, whatever I want to do, just let me do. And I had prayed that day and I, I, you know, something just told me, yeah, let's, you know, I want to see my mom happy. And, um, Mm -hmm. we did, we must have, um, you know, drink our vodka and laugh, play cards. And she liked to go to Cash Creek and Las Vegas to gamble. And we did that and she won. And, you know, I just had those last few years were really, really great. But at the same time, if it wasn't one thing, it was another, you know, and then I had to uh, fight to save a child's life and to watch my daughter go through what she had gone through was very, very challenging. So here I am, this young woman with all these responsibilities and trying to deal with everything. I mean, time management had became just a daily routine for me. So, you know, my heart goes out to you and I'm so happy that she's doing well and everything. I lost my mom in 2011 on Mother's Day. So, um, I tend to, you know, like everyone else, grieve, especially on Mother's Day. So, but I'm moving forward. I know she'll be very proud of me right now. So, yeah. So, Mr. Farber, tell me, what's something you be just ecstatic about doing every day for the rest of your life? Teaching. <laughs> Teaching. That's the thing that really turns me on. Um, I I just, just and I I just get so excited and so overjoyed to be able to teach somebody something. Um, when I'm in the museum and and somebody, one of the things we have is the original Apollo Nine command module, mm-hmm. um, which is on loan from NASA. Um, it's on permanent loan, and and somebody will come there to look at the look at it, and, and and you know most of most of the things that NASA has, you know, they have them well away from everybody, so no one can get near it. Ours, you can walk right up to it, which is kind of mm. unique. And and they walk up there and they look at it and they peer inside and they go, "Wow, this is a really neat model." And I I look at them and say, "Nope." It's the real thing, at which point the look on their face is just absolutely priceless. <laughs> and and teaching them teaching them about it, you know, teaching them about what Apollo was all about, or you know whatever else I'm teaching in the museum, 
or if I'm giving a talk about serendipity and teaching them about serendipity, or if it's a, a talk about the national parks and telling somebody about my experiences in, in hiking national parks, whatever it is, um, teaching somebody something and, and seeing the look on their faces and, and, and seeing like the bulb go, you know, um, light up, you know, above their head as and they got it, uh, it, it, it's just a wonderful thing. It is. I love teaching too. I love mentoring. I love girls. I always have felt that if we are given the right resources, we can just dance, dance our way just everywhere. So that is my main mm-hmm. focus. And um, I love doing what I do. And I'm passionate about doing what I what I do. So tell us, how can someone purchase your book? So it's available um, on the usual online uh, website, you know, the online uh, sellers like mm-hmm. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, um, those kinds of online books. And you can buy it in either paperback or, um, at Kindle, you know, electronically. Um, or you can directly write to the, or, or go online to my publisher, which mm-hmm. is Boyle and Dalton, um, and they they can provide a copy either way. Um, but the easiest way probably is to go either on Amazon or Barnes and Noble or something like that, or you can okay. go to a Barnes and Noble bookstore and ask them to order it for you. Oh, okay, beautiful. Is there anything else you would like to say? Um, I guess the main thing is like that serendipity is happening all around us. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, I've talked to so many people who have said, Hey, maybe that was an episode of serendipity. And so, yeah, <laughs> it's happening all the time. I don't know why, uh, you know, there are lots of perhaps reasons for it. Who knows? But, um, uh, I do know that, that a lot of people don't take advantage of it. And it's, you know, it, it's, it's not good for them, but it's also not good for society if you don't take advantage of it. Um, you know, Sir, Sir Arthur Fleming um, invented or, or discovered penicillin because of a serendipitous episode. If he hadn't been aware and, and use his skills to be able to realize what he had, we wouldn't have penicillin. Um, and there are many other examples like that. So you really need to, to be aware of it and and take advantage of it so that it can help you, but also help society. Absolutely. I, I absolutely agree. Before we end our show, I want to state a couple of concerns that I have. As always, one is I hope everyone has gotten their vote in and for the recall of Governor Gavin Newsom, which is no. And also, I would like to salute everyone who is fighting against voter suppression. We all deserve to vote, no matter if we live on a boat. Absolutely. With that being said, <laughs> Mr. Farber, 
It was a pleasure having you on my show, and I thank you so much for your support. As always, listeners, thank you. you're so welcome. As always, listeners, I have reached my destination, and I leave you with the quote of the day. It is the long history of humankind that those who learned to collaborate and improvise most effectively have prevailed. Charles Darwin. Today, I want to give thanks to everyone who has been part of my life's journey. Without you, I wouldn't be here today on my radio show, and I thank you all. With that being said, please stay safe. I hope everyone gets their shots. Also visit ParnellFarm.com where you can get your added protection, mouth sprays, face and nasal sprays as well, and the Dermafresh uh, Skin Toner Cleanser. This all helps you with um, combating against COVID-19. Everyone again, thank you and have a beautiful day. Thank you for listening to All Roads 65 Max Radio with Pamela Henderson. Join us every other week on Tuesdays, 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on BBS Radio Station One. And please visit allroads65max.org and become a volunteer or sponsor and be the change you want to see in this world. With your help, we can make a difference in our society and uplift those who so desperately need our help. Thank you for tuning in.